Come on in. <coughs> Let me just uh, warn you ahead of time, if I end up clearing my throat too much, I'm sorry, I apologize. I know it's awkward, but uh, unfortunately, that's just the nature of it right now. I've tried everything. I've tried everything. I did like it, but I've tried, and it <coughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, first of all, let me also mention uh, we wanted to say welcome home. He's not in the room right now that I see, but Eli is back. Oh, there he is. He moved up front. I saw him in the back corner. I'm looking back there. Welcome home, Eli. Eli will be among us here for some time uh, as he's preparing, hopefully, for Elam, and we're grateful for that. We also wanted to say congratulations to Brittany Mann, who has announced on Facebook that she is now expecting her third young lady. So, And there's probably something else that I've missed, but that's called old age. How many of you know who Kirsten Powers is? Okay. <clears throat> Kirsten Powers is a columnist for uh, USA Today and Newsweek. She also is kind of a freelance contributor to different networks like Fox News. She tells about uh, <clears throat> her life in a recent article in uh, Christianity Today. And she talks about the transition she makes from atheism to Christianity. And she tells about how there was a point in her life when she knew, as far as she knew, there was not one person of her acquaintance that was a Christian. All of her friends were what she called New York liberals, and if they ever spoke of Christianity, they spoke with disdain and foolishness of people who wasted their time going to church. In fact, she recounts how on one occasion somebody said to her something like, what is a deal breaker for you in terms of people that you will or won't date? She said, I would never date somebody who is religious. And that's her testimony out of Christianity Today. <coughs> well, to her shock one day, she was dating a guy, and one day he let it slip that he was a Christian. And she was horrified. So they had a conversation over a meal, and he said to her, well, do you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? And she said, absolutely not. I don't even believe there is a Jesus. And then he said these words to her, well, can you at least keep an open mind? And she, of course, as a reporter, I mean, this is like what is supposed to be part of the warp and move of her being, immediately responded, of course, I'm always open-minded. She said, uh, up to that point, she had derided everything Christian. Everything that had to do with Christ or church or Christianity she hated with a passion. And she found that this man's Christianity, this man's church attendance, was a weirdness that she tried to overlook. But as he talked to her over a period of time, she found herself becoming more and more conflicted. She said, on the one hand, I was creeped out. On the other hand, I had enormous respect for him. He's smart, educated, and intellectually curious. I remember thinking, what if this is possibly true and I'm not even willing to consider it? She started going to church with him and to her shock, the sermons actually began to shake her core. After a while, her life went through some upheaval and one of the people at church recommended that she actually go to one of the church's Bible studies. Now, she had never been to a Bible study. She always considered that Bible studies were actually where terrorists were formed. She believed that. So she'd never been to a Bible study. So she went into the first Bible study with fear and trepidation. She said literally shaking inside, not knowing what she would encounter. And she says this, <clears throat> all I know is that when I left, everything had changed. I'll never forget standing outside that apartment and saying to myself, it's true. It's completely true. The world looked entirely different, like a veil had been lifted off of it. I had not an iota of doubt. 
I was filled with indescribable joy. And I love this part of her testimony. However, the horror of the prospect of being a devout Christian crept back in immediately, and I began to find every way in power to get away from this. She says this, I spent the next few months doing my best to run away from God. It was pointless. Everywhere I turned, there he was. Slowly, there was less fear and more joy. The hound of heaven had pursued me, and he caught me, whether I liked it or not. I love that testimony. <clears throat> so Kirsten was a woman who doubted God. She certainly isn't one of whom we might be aware of who similarly doubted God. You've never heard of Kirsten's name, but maybe you've heard of others. How many of you have heard of a guy by the name of Lee Strobel? <clears throat> he was the editor, an editor, a contributor, and then an editor <clears throat> of Christianity Today. This is his testimony. For most of my life, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe, I thought it was stupid. I mean, my background is in journalism and law. I tend to be a skeptical person by personality and DNA. I was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So I needed evidence before I would believe anything. One day, my wife came up to me, and she'd been an agnostic while I was an atheist. She said that after a period of investigation, she had decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought this was the worst possible news anybody could ever give me. And I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude who was going to spend all of her time serving the poor on Skid Row somewhere, and I thought this would be the end of our marriage. But in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values and her character and the way she related to me and our children. It was winsome. It was attractive. It made me want to actually check out what was going on for her. So I went to church one day, mainly, mainly hoping to be able to extricate her from the cult in which she had gotten herself hooked up. But I heard the message of Jesus articulated for the first time in a way that I could understand. That forgiveness is a free gift and that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that we might spend eternity with him. As I walked out, I said, still an atheist, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. So I used my journalism training and my legal training to begin an investigation into whether there was credibility to Christianity or to any other world faith, for that matter. I did that for one year and nine months, until November 8, 1991. By the way, that's like just a month or two after we moved here. On that day, I realized that in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing towards the truth of Jesus Christ, and I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law, and to respond to truth wherever it took me. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and my leader. So Kirsten Powers, <coughs> Lee Strobel, maybe you've heard of some others, like C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, who converted to Christianity. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, some of you might have heard of him. He was imprisoned in the Russian gulags. And while there, he began a journey trying to find out if what his parents had told him as a child could possibly be true about God. And that the reason why Russia was in the state it was was because they turned their back on God. And it, while as a prisoner in a Russian gulag, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ and began to write about it, knowing that his writings would never see the light of day knowing that no one would ever read one word he ever wrote. 
but I have a shelf full of his books today writing about his faith. Or how many of you ever heard of Peter Hitchens? Peter Hitchens is the brother of Christopher Hitchens, who was a, a renowned atheist, actually boasted in it until recently when he passed away. But Peter Hitchens, raised in the same environment, coming to the same conclusion about atheism, after doing thorough research, realized he was wrong and that faith in Christ was the only logical course for his life. Alexander, Alex, Alistair McGrath was a lawyer who began a search to disprove Christianity and ended up coming to faith. And of course, probably one of the more recent ones you might have heard of, Kirk Cameron, who was a well-known young actor on TV. And he himself was an atheist who came to faith in God because of witnesses who came to him. Now, these are all people who doubted God and came to instead doubt their atheism. And we can expect doubt sometimes. I mean, you would expect doubt from atheists and agnostics. You would perhaps expect doubt in the lives of people who don't go to church. Or maybe we might even expect doubt in the lives of people who are nominal Christians. People who come to church once in a while, maybe twice a year on Christmas and Easter. But we would expect doubt from them. But should born-again, spirit-filled, on-fire Christians ever doubt? Is that a possibility? Can believers actually have doubts once in a while? And my response to that is, yes, I think that they can. <coughs> Excuse me. Years ago, while still a little boy, our youngest son, Jeremy, um, he was about as inquisitive, inquisitive as they come. Jeremy's not here. He should hear me talk about him. Uh, down in nursery. <clears throat> he was inquisitive. In fact, at one point, a prophetic person came into the church and called him out and said, you're like the family reporter. You have to know everything. Didn't know anything about him, but it was true. Jeremy wanted to know things. So he asked questions. And one of his favorite phrases that used to drive Karen and I nuts during that time season of his life was, how do you know? No matter what we would say to him, his response was, how do you know? And you got to think of it like a little boy saying it like, how do you know? Um, we would talk about things that were important in life, and he would challenge us. Things like, we would declare that the earth is round. How do you know? And we would talk to him about Pythagoras and Aristotle and Christopher Columbus and how sailors would look out at the horizon and see that it would drop off. And they knew that it couldn't be perfectly flat. It had to have some curvature to it. We talked about that. But no matter what answer we would give him, he would say, how do you know? Because the truth is, even if you're raised in a Christian home, a home with parents who are believers, or you yourself are a Christian, it's still possible for you sometimes to doubt. And I want to suggest to you something today. I want to suggest that not all questioning and not all doubting is bad. In fact, sometimes good questions can lead you to deeper truth and deeper faith. Would you turn to John chapter 20? John 20. We are on our second to the last chapter in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> John 20, and we want to pick up reading in verse 19. And I want to contrast today, kind of as an idea to keep in your mind, is our faith in God or is our faith in faith? Because if your faith is in faith, it can be easily shaken because your faith itself is tenuous at times. Because the truth is, our joy of certainty is not knowing how firm a hold we have on God, but how firm a hold He has on us. So that's why I would contrast for you today 
if we can, through the story, putting your faith in God, which leaves room for honest questions. As long as those questions lead you back to God himself. Okay? So, John, ni- John 20, verse 19. Would you follow along? <clears throat> I feel like saying to you, just read it to yourself quietly, and then I'll start talking, but just because of my throat. Then the same day at evening, <clears throat> being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It makes you wonder, by the way, up until that point where he showed them his hands and his side, did they know it was the Lord? Or were they waiting to see some evidence? So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain or keep the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. (coughs) The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my fingers into the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came and the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. In other words, he walked right through the walls, walked through the door. Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, here in our story today, one of Jesus' closest followers doubted. In fact, his name has become a byword for doubt. When We encounter someone who refuses to believe something that is clearly true. We will often refer to them as a doubting Thomas. How would you like to go down in history with your name associated with the worst moment of your life? That you doubted Christ. As if Thomas was the only one who ever doubted. But you know and I know that's not true. The truth is there have been times in our lives when we have doubted. So he's not standing alone. Now, as I was preparing this message, wanting to look specifically at the text, but to make sure that it applies to our lives, I thought it would be good to look at this word doubt to see how many times it actually occurs in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament. And to my surprise, I found out that there were actually three Greek words that are translated in our Bibles, doubt. Now, I don't always give you the Greek words because a lot of you don't care about them, but I enjoy it, number one. But number two, I think it's good every once in a while for you to actually see that there are differences in the words. They're not just minor differences. They're actually completely different Greek words. So I'm going to give them to you really quickly. The first is the word diakrino, diakrino. That only occurs two times in the Bible. And it means to hesitate, to be separated, or torn inside because of uncertainty. To hesitate. That's the word Jesus used when he said, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. That's the word, diacrino. It means does not hesitate, but believes that they will see what they have said. It will be done for them. To hesitate. Then there's secondly the Greek word distadzo. Distadzo. 
<clears throat> this word occurs 19 times, and it means to waver or doubt, to be double-minded. That's the word that Jesus used when, remember the occasion when he had sent his disciples across the sea and a storm came? He was up on a mountain praying. He saw them way out in the middle of the sea in the midst of the storm. And he came to them, it says, walking on the water. And he was like a ghost as far as they were concerned. They were shocked. They were scared. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you. So Jesus said, well, then come on. Peter gets out on the water. He starts walking. And you remember the story. He did fine until he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to look at the waves and all of the crashing things going on around him. And he began to sink. Jesus reaches out, he saves him, puts him back in the boat, and then Jesus says this to him, why did you doubt? That's the word, distazo. So those two words for doubt. But there's a third word, which is the word that's in John chapter 20, and it's the word apistos. Apistos. Apistos actually comes from two Greek words. The first is pista, which literally means Faith or trust or belief. True, it's also translated. But when you put the prefix a in front of it, where it becomes a pistos, the word a or the prefix a means no. So that literally a pistos means no faith, no belief, no trust. Now, what that says to me is that there are kind of flavors of doubt in our lives. There's the kind of doubt when we pray about something, we want something to happen, and we hesitate even before we ask God for it because it seems a little bit too big, a little bit too grandiose, a little too impossible. Would God really do that? And so we doubt. We doubt even about praying it. We met yesterday as a leadership team uh, for a visioning meeting, which was very, very, very good, uh, very hopeful. And one of the things we talked about early on is if we ask God for what we can do ourselves, there's no faith necessary. We can accomplish it already. What we want to do is ask God for stuff beyond our power where it demands some faith. So, one of the words that came out of that meeting is we have to ask grandly because he's a grand God. He's a big God. Ask big and believe big. That's what this first flavor of doubt has to do with, where you don't ask because, well, I don't really think God would be doing that for me. And that's the first flavor of doubt that goes back to the first word. The second one is where we feel overwhelmed by our circumstances and they begin to get us down and discouraged and upset. And we begin to doubt whether God even has control of our lives or not. We begin to second-guess decisions that we've made, things that we thought, did God really say? Would be another way of looking at this kind of doubt. And I have to tell you, although we shouldn't doubt, obviously, I think to some extent in this human body, doubting is going to be normal while we live here. There are going to be things that are going to make us hesitate, make us wonder, make us second-guess ourselves, make us feel overwhelmed by our circumstances, and we wonder sometimes, does God really know what He's doing? Because I prayed for this, and the opposite happened. How come they get it, and I don't? And we begin to wonder, and we begin to doubt. This last kind of doubt, this epistos doubt thing, though, the doubt that Thomas had, that's a different kind of doubt. I want to suggest to you that's a dangerous kind of doubt. The other flavors of doubt kind of could slow us down in our faith, could uh, uh, maybe hobble us a little bit. I look at them kind of like speed bumps, things that kind of rattle us at times, but we're still on the road and we're still going. But this last kind of doubt, this apistos kind of doubt is different. This kind of doubt will ultimately destroy you if you allow it too much time in your mind and in your soul. This kind of doubt can actually cut you off from God. I want you to listen to these verses in which the word apistos is used. 
These are verses that I'm, I'm just going to give to you. I don't know whether I even put them up on the screen or not, but either way, you can note them down. But these are verses that have this word apistos in it. Listen to this. Paul warned Titus in Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, that's the word apistos, nothing is pure. Even their mind and consciences are defiled. In other words, if you hang out with this kind of doubt too long, it will begin to distort your thinking. It will begin to change how you view life. It will begin to change how you view God. It will begin to change how you view life in the body. I mean, I've talked to people over the years and years who have come here, who loved what's going on, loved everything, loved the worship, loved the preaching, got so much out of it, but something happens in their life that shakes their faith. And instead of running to God with their questions, they run away from God. And pretty soon they say, I don't like the music anymore. It's the same old, same old. They do the same songs every single week. And the sermons are boring, and you watch them move from the front to the back because they hung out too long with this kind of no faith. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, says this. And by the way, this doesn't happen all at once. It's subtle. It's little by little. It's rare for somebody to just suddenly crash and burn. Something has happened that has begun to erode their confidence in God. But Hebrews 3.12 says this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in you, any of you, an evil. And by the way, that word evil means corrupt or diseased. There be in any of you a diseased heart of unbelief, the word epistos, episteia, in departing from the living God. He is saying this kind of doubt is actually like a cancer that can kill you if you give it too much room and too much time. Then John writes in the book of Revelation, verse 8 of chapter 21, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, that's apistos, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, according to this verse, those people who practice, who nurture, who maintain this kind of unbelieving heart will end up separated from God and even in hell itself. Again, we're not talking about those other kinds of doubt where we're just struggling, trying to find God in the midst of it, trying to figure out what's going on in life. That's not what we're talking about. This isn't about honest questioning, trying to understand something. This is about challenging God to his face. And we end up all alone, separated from God. Bob Mumford, who was one of uh, the teachers that was my favorites uh, as I grew in God over the years, and he's still on Facebook, for those of you that care. He has a ministry that is still ongoing, just a dynamic teacher. Wonderful insights. Uh, Bob Mumford said uh, on one occasion that when God judges his people, he judges them to wander in circles. They're chasing their own tail. And he used that illustration out of the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, just going in circles. I would suggest to you there's even something worse. When you allow this kind of doubt to take root in your heart, you aren't just wandering in circles, you're left alone. You're left to yourself. Listen to this verse. I, I don't think I put it up there. Hosea 4.17. Ephraim is joined to idols. This is God speaking. I did put it. Ephraim is joined to idols. In other words, you made an idol of your own mind, your own rationale, your own thinking, your own sense of what should be. Ephraim has joined herself to idols. Let her alone. Let him alone. There can't be nothing worse than God saying, have your own way. Go your own way. Can't be anything worse. Now, step back one moment. We're, we're talking about Thomas, who is called Doubting Thomas. But if you look at the rest of Thomas's life, you get a somewhat different picture. Thomas actually comes off looking like a pretty good guy. In fact, I want to remind you that according to Luke chapter 6, 
When Jesus chose his 12 disciples, it says he spent all night praying before he selected them. And so he had the mind of the Father in the selection of his disciples, and Thomas made the cut. In other words, Thomas had potential. Thomas was a choice that Jesus made. He was a man who had ability, a man who could act on his belief. And in all the other times in the Gospels, when the name Thomas shows up, he actually looks good. In fact, on one occasion in uh, John chapter 11, Jesus is telling about the fact that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed. He's going to die. Thomas's response to the other disciples is, let us go with him and die also. In other words, he says, I've got courage. If you're going to die, we're not going to let you die alone. We're going with you. On another occasion in John 14, when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And can I just stop for a second? I was just talking with somebody just recently about this. That word mansions in the Greek, in your Bibles, only occurs three times in the Bible, and every other time it occurs it is translated either abode, place, or home. It's not talking about a mansion. It's not talking about if you're holy enough, you get a bigger place in heaven. He's saying, I'm making a place for you, a room for you. Where I am, where my home is, I'm making a home for you in my heart. So can we agree just as Christians to be mature enough to not be looking for mansions in heaven? Uh, when I grew up in uh, the church I was in, we used to sing a song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. I want to just say to you point blank, you ain't got no mansion. There are probably going to be no mansions in heaven as you're thinking about them. In fact, the truth is when you get to heaven, you won't care. All you'll care about is that Jesus is there and you're there. So don't worry about your mansions. But he says, in my father's house are many places, homes, place to live. In other words, my father's got a lot of room for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, <coughs> that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And all the disciples are kind of looking down at the ground, kind of kicking the dust. And that. Nobody wanted to say anything. But Thomas, Thomas had courage. Thomas speaks up and says, Lord, forgive me, but we don't know where you're going. And we don't know the way. And Jesus' response, which, by the way, you wouldn't have if Thomas hadn't asked this question. Jesus' response is this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You wouldn't even have that verse in your Bibles if Thomas hadn't had the courage to speak up and say, uh, Jesus, question here. You know what it's like to be in a class where no one wants to raise their hands and look like the dummy? Thomas had courage, and he asked questions. So in Thomas, we see a picture of a Christian, if I can word it that way, a follower of Jesus, a believer. He loves Jesus, and he's willing to suffer and even to die for Jesus. But then, late in life, after Jesus has died and rose again, he was late to the party. It says that when the other disciples were gathered in that upper room, Thomas wasn't there. Have you ever wondered where Thomas was? You ever wondered why Thomas wasn't there? The Bible doesn't say, but it does make me wonder. But he wasn't there, and so when he does come, the disciples are excited because they have just been with Jesus. He's alive. And they begin to talk to him about it. And Thomas says this. Look at verse 25 again. Just look at it. Look at how it probably was said. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He doesn't say, guys, I got to tell you the truth. I got my doubts. He doesn't say, I'm really struggling with this. Are you sure you guys didn't have pizza with anchovies again last night? Because you know what happened last time you did. He doesn't say, I'm struggling, I'm trying. He doesn't say, are you guys really sure? He says, simply and to the point, I will not believe. Now, I got to tell you, that's a dangerous way to deal with God. 
I mean, doubt is one thing, but telling what God what you'll accept as proof is a whole other thing. Telling God to come down and settle things on your term might not end up so well for you. I doubt that, forgive the pun on words, I doubt that Thomas knew what he was doing at the moment. But he was skating on thin ice. He was in a dangerous place if he let it have too much room in his soul. But my question is this. If Thomas was as recalcitrant as he was, if he was as stubborn and resistant to the truth as he was, recalcitrant, it's a good word, John. He's looking at me like, what? If Thomas was as bad in his doubt as he was, why did Jesus show up and give him an opportunity to prove his presence? Why did Jesus come and show mercy to Thomas who refused to believe? And i got to tell you, I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't say. But I can say this, I'm awful glad he did. Because that says to me that when I struggle in my doubt, Jesus is a merciful father, a merciful son, a merciful co-heir with me, as we sang this morning. Have you ever doubted God? Have you ever said something like this? I don't believe God would ever let that happen. And if he did, he's not the kind of God I'd want to serve. I've had people in this church say that to me. My God would never do that. My God would never allow that to happen as if somehow your God is better than everybody else's God and your God is different than everybody else's God. What you're trying to say in your heart is, would God really allow that to happen? I thought about it uh, recently. We went through April, which is the anniversary of Jennifer's accident. Some of you guys will remember that if you were here. (coughs) And I have to tell you, throughout that whole thing, that was as much a faith challenge as I have ever had in my life. I had people in this church who didn't even like being around Karen and I because we were struggling so. But I tell you, we were struggling because we're like, okay, God, we've served you with all of our hearts. We've served you with our whole lives. We've given everything to follow you. You can't tell me that it's okay for our daughter to die. That's not okay with me, God. That's not how a father acts, is it? But the end result was that challenge of our faith, or at least of my faith, brought us back to God. Because I wasn't saying, I will not believe. I was saying, God, I'm really struggling right now. I need your help. I think it's okay to struggle and even to doubt sometimes. To wonder, what is it that God's doing? Why is he doing this? I don't understand. As long as it drives you back to God. Now, in the story, Jesus, who was merciful to Thomas, came and showed himself to him, still ends with saying, stop being unbelieving, but believe. In other words, stop it. Don't live there anymore, Thomas. It's dangerous. I think he was warning Thomas not to hang around the edge too long or else you might slip over the edge. And once you do, it's a dangerous place. Now, what was it that Thomas was doubting? I believe he was doubting what Jesus had promised. See, all throughout this last weeks of Jesus' life, Jesus had told the disciples again and again, and I've got verses I can just... Read them to you real quick. Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 22, and 23, Matthew 20, 19. Each time Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. But then he adds this, and I will rise again the third day. Thomas doubted that. Thomas doubted whether Jesus would keep his promise, whether Jesus would actually rise from the dead. Now, Jesus also adds this. He says, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, he's saying to Thomas, I'm going to cut you some slack right now. I'm going to let you see me. But there will be people who won't see me, and they're still going to have to choose whether to believe or not. The very nature and fabric of faith is such that we are called to believe without seeing and without touching. We are called to believe. Not 
having the advantage that Thomas did, but believing anyways. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to believe God. It's impossible to have faith in God without faith. And faith is the evidence of things not seen. In other words, if you're going to have faith in God, you're not going to see everything as you want to see. This is not a matter of seeing as believing. This is a matter of believing ultimately might mean you do see some things. But we believe anyways. And it's not enough to believe in God. In fact, James says the demons believe in God. And yet they're still destined for hell. We are called to believe on God. When we believe on God, it means we're placing our whole faith and trust of our whole lives on him. You are who you say you are, and you will do what you say you will do in regards to me. My point is very simply this. It's okay to struggle in your faith once in a while, to doubt, to wonder. It's okay to have questions and to say, I don't understand. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures about this is Mark chapter 9, where Jesus comes down off of the Mount of Transfigurations. Things are going on. His disciples tried to deliver a young boy from this thing. He couldn't. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, if you have faith, it'll happen. And the man says, I believe, Jesus. And then he adds this little phrase, but help my unbelief. In other words, he was saying, I really do believe. But you're asking me to believe a really big thing, Jesus. That's hard. Will you help me? And I think that's a different kind of doubting. That's a different kind of crisis of faith. That's where you say, Jesus, I'm still coming to you even though I don't understand. He wasn't saying he wouldn't believe in Jesus. He's admitting he's struggling. But he's saying, I want to. I want to believe in you. How many of you guys know the name uh, Lee Iokoka? Lee Iokoka, any of you guys? Okay. For some of you older guys, you would remember he was the guy who actually created the Ford Mustang. So for those of you guys who like the Ford Mustang, that was his doing. Uh, he also, uh, later in life, when he was going to retire from Ford, went over to uh, Dodge uh, Chrysler and took that over when it was failing. They were looking to close the door. And he actually developed the Chrysler Caravan and the Plymouth Voyager as a means of saving the Chrysler Corporation. And it did just that. But he was known as an entrepreneur. But on one occasion, he was talking with a young man who wanted to develop ideas and he was in his company. And Leah Iacocca took him aside and says this to him. The trouble with you is that in college, they taught you not to take any action until you had all the facts. You've got 95% of the facts right now. And it's going to take you another six months to get the other 5%. And by that time, your other 95% will be out of date and it'll be too late. He says, sometime in life, you'll be forced to make a choice and then leap. That's what faith is about. Thomas had all kinds of information. He had walked with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus heal people dramatically with a touch of his hand, with the word of his mouth. He saw people feed thousands with some morsels. He saw people raised from the dead because of Jesus. He had information empirically like we don't have. And he still doubted. Sometimes you just have to make a choice. Tony Campolo, and I'll end with this story, told of the time when he had finished a lecture and a student stood up and said, Dr. Campolo, you seem like a reasonable man. How can you, with your sophistication and your office in life, your degrees, really believe the Bible? This was his response. It's easy. I just decided to. Then he went on. And once I decided to, I spent the next 35 years of my life accumulating arguments and evidence to support what I already had chosen to believe. Reason only came afterwards. It only supported what I already committed myself to. And then he went on. Now, he's talking to the student. Before you get nasty with me, I've got to ask you a question. Why don't you believe the Bible? Isn't it because you just decided not to one day? And please, he said, don't tell me it's because you've read it from cover to cover. Spare me that. Don't give me that jazz that it's full of contradictions because you can't honestly name five of them because no one can. 
somewhere along the line, you personally decided not to believe. And after you decided not to believe, you've been accumulating information to support your commitment to non-belief. The young student looked at Campolo and said, you don't understand. For me to believe in God, I have to have a God that I can understand. And Campolo said this, God refuses to be as small as your mind. If God is small enough to understand, he's too small to worship. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts beyond our thoughts. When we come to this place where we say, I don't understand everything. I don't understand why this happened. And by the way, if you've lived life at all, you will have those questions. I don't understand theologically some things. People come and ask me questions I don't have answers to. I'm thinking, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to have the answers. I'm sorry, I don't. There's a lot of things in life I don't understand. But this one thing I do know. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I have decided to put all of my faith, every bit of my equity of trust on him. And I'm not going back. I will not leave him. He has a stronger hold on me even than that, for which I also give God thanks. That's what trust is about. John ends this chapter with this last verse, verse 31, if you'd look at it. <clears throat> These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Our very salvation, life eternal and life abundant, is dependent upon this primary currency of heaven. Will you trust God? I'm not saying we won't have doubts at times, but will you take your doubts to God and say to God, whether I ever understand it or not, I'm still going to love you. That's really boiling down our faith to the essence. Would you stand? As I come to every single chapter in John, it has been with the awareness that there has been a multiple of ways to approach that chapter and what I'm going to say to you here on a Sunday morning. But as I prepared for this week, I thought, I just want to say to you guys, just point blank, people are normal. We're normal. We struggle with stuff. We doubt at times ourselves. We doubt God. We doubt what's happening around us. Those kinds of things are a normal part of life, and they're okay as long as we continue to press into God, even in the midst of our struggles and our questions. To say, God, I know you have an answer. You are the answer. And whether I ever get the answer I want that's going to satisfy my logic, my mind, I'm still going to love you and I'm still going to trust you because I have decided you are God. That's what he said. These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I believe you are Jesus. That's just who you are. So I want to pray for you knowing that for some of you here, you might be in a place of doubting. You might be here in a struggle. Maybe you're facing things that have left you kind of reeling. Maybe for you, this is a really hard season in life because you're dealing with stuff that just doesn't make sense. And you say, where is God in the mix? And I think, by the way, that's an excellent question. The question is, in the midst of what's going on, what might God be doing in me and around me? Not just why doesn't he do what I want? But what might God be doing? Because sometimes those hard things that I wanted God to stop and I wanted an answer for why he allowed it, he actually was doing a work inside of me that wouldn't have happened any other way. So I want to pray for you. And when we're done, if you're here and you're struggling with issues in your life and you would like personal prayer, I'm going to ask the elders, specifically uh, Tom and Sharon who are on duty, they're going to be up front. They would be happy to pray for you. Anybody else that you would like? We would be happy to pray for you if you are struggling in an area and just say, I just want to pray and say, God, help me to settle some issues in my own heart. But I want to pray that for you now. Would you bow your heads? <clears throat> Father, I recognize that in a room this size with this many folks, there are all different kinds of life situations. 
There are things that people are dealing with that others aren't even aware of, some that we are aware of. There are things that folks are struggling with in their marriages, in their parenting, in their families, in relationships. Even this morning I had someone ask me, could you pray for me because my family relationships aren't going well. Some are struggling in that arena. Some are struggling with finances. God, you said you would provide all my needs, but I feel like I'm barely keeping body and soul together. But the end result, Father, of all these different kinds of crises and struggles is, God, I just don't understand. But Lord, help us at the end of it all to be able to say, but I still trust and love you. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. Like King Jehoshaphat, we're going to say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. So Lord, would you not move among the folks gathered here today and give us a clear understanding of what it means to struggle well in our faith and to keep our eyes on you the whole time. And where folks are reeling, Lord, I pray that you would cause their feet to be planted on a rock that is higher than them. David talked about his struggles again and again. Different writers, uh, different characters within the Bible talk about their struggles, things they went through. But in the end, they became the heroes of faith, the patriarchs of our faith. So, Father, we trust you today. Let that be within us a deep resolve that no matter what, I'm going to trust. I choose God no matter what. People are going to ask me questions out there that I don't, I can't come up with the answer easily. They're going to ask me to explain things that I don't understand. But in the end, I choose God. Your questions aren't going to throw me. I might look into it. I might try to understand. But when any answer comes in contradiction to your character, God, I choose God. God, I choose you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that would be the response of every heart in this house. I ask it, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, again, if you would like prayer, Tom and Sharon are here. Feel free to come forward and get prayer. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day.